Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. From Tsunami Sushi in downtown Lafayette, we're Out to Lunch with Christian Maida, editor and publisher of The Current. It's business Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mater. What's new is new, but what's old can be timeless. We get obsessed with new ideas in business, in innovation, a technology, a new place to put cheese on pizza. But sometimes a good business model is sourcing an old idea and bringing it back. That's true in fashion. Folks say trends are cyclical anyway, and that's true also in farming. When you look behind the American food distribution system, it's kind of nuts. People in Florida buy oranges from Mexico. People in Louisiana buy shrimp and crawfish from China. They just don't tell anybody about it. These are logistical innovations brought on by scale commodities and economies, and it's totally reshaped our relationship with food. My guest, Mark Guidry, saw that system and figured it was ripe for disruption. Mark and his wife, Connie, are the co-owners of Guidry Organic Farms. The brand is maybe best known for their pecan products. Guidry's pecan butter is a bestseller, but they also raise cattle and chickens and harvest blueberries. Whatever they do, they do it old school organic. The Guidry's practice regenerative farming, buy products from one side of the farm, support growth on another. It's kind of how farming used to be. Mark didn't grow up farming, but he did grow up in Lafayette. Mark Guidry, welcome to Out to Lunch. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. If you're like me, you probably buy your clothes off the rack, more likely off the internet, and they don't fit too well. Tailoring is mostly a thing of the past as the fashion industry is sprinted toward fast fashion, but an old-school method can make sense in a 21st century economy, too. E-commerce is a surprisingly good fit for custom mobile tailoring. That's the edge for Nathan Pierce, CEO of Pierce Bespoke Franchising. Pierce Bespoke offers suits tailor-made on the go through a mobile shop, and they come to you, get your measurements, and whip up a design fit for your body in about three weeks. Nathan's been in the clothing business for most of his career as an entrepreneur. Out of college, he launched Fraternity Collection, a custom t-shirt making business that was his first taste of success. And he owns several Pierce Bespoke locations, including the shops in Lafayette, Baton Rouge, and in New Orleans. But he's also franchised the brand, extending its reach to dozens of other locations on pace to reach 50 by the end of the year. Nathan is originally from New Orleans, but now lives in Baton Rouge. Nathan Pierce, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you for having me. So, excited to be here. Oh, glad you're excited. I'm excited. Mark, um, farming, I think, notably, I'm probably not telling you something you don't already know, is hard. It's hard work. Ver but you, you didn't start farming. Most people I know that do farming kind of grow up in it. So... Was it as hard as you expected it to be when you kind of got started? More difficult than I had imagined. Um, so I own a farm. Yeah. I, we practice all organic methods, but my great-grandfather was a landowner and, sure. a, and had a large farm in Lafayette, central Lafayette. Yeah. Um, he, he left that farm to his five sons, uh, of which one of those was my grandfather. So we had a beautiful piece of land in central Lafayette that now is apartment buildings, a post office, and sure. all the rest of it. Yeah. And uh, if he would have structured that just a little bit differently, that, that would be a functional farm in the center of town. Uh -huh. so, so my interest in farming came from my great-grandfather. Yeah, what were you doing before that? Oil and gas-related uh, service business. Yeah. Uh, we had a company, Timco Services, my business partner, Mike Mare, mm -hmm. and, uh, and myself. We ran that for about 35 years. Wow. Sold it recently. Yeah. And... Uh, and then, anyway, I was able to get, 
get get connected to the farming. Yeah, so I mean, a change of industry, but still dealing with a commodity, as it were. Um, Nathan, you know, I would think I hear sort of bespoke custom tailoring, right? You start talking about references to Savile Row. This is very high life kind of stuff in my mind. And I'm thinking about sort of the price point on this a little bit, where it's like, there's a double-edged sword, right? You want to sell something at a reasonable price and people think, hey, I can afford that. On the other hand, I would think a person that's in the market for a custom suit is thinking like, expensive means good. So like, who is the customer for your business? I mean, who, who fits that mold? It's like, I want something made just for me, but I don't want to spend too much money on it. Yeah, so one of the first things I usually get, uh, especially from people over a certain age, is Nathan, no one wears suits anymore, right? <laughs> and uh, first of all, my argument would be, no, my, my data says otherwise. Yeah. Uh, suits are cool again. Um, but we're not just a suit company. We're a custom clothing sure. company. Yeah. And the reality is we're all human beings and you know we're, we're not technically made for off the rack. Some people have broad shoulders and stomachs, especially in the South. <laughs> and uh, our tape measure allows us to have clothes that fit based on who we are. And uh, our argument and what we've built uh, our foundation on is affordable bespoke clothing. Uh, in a white glove service that allows someone to come in, measure you from the neck down, save those measurements in the system, and then deliver a garment, wrinkle-free, steamed out, ready to go, and uh, we tailor to your every need. So a button breaks, we come by, pick it up, replace the button, bring it back to you. But it's affordable. So our argument is why would you buy off the rack when you could have something made just for you at an affordable price point? So you said the data shows that people aren't wearing suits. I mean, I, I, I own a suit, it's not a great suit, I thought about buying a suit, so we should probably have a conversation later. But, I mean, I'm thinking about it in terms of, you know, uh, I guess I hadn't thought about whether there were trends in people buying suits or not. I mean, what does the data tell us? I mean, are people buying more suits than they were 10 years ago? Has it been steady? I, I know you make other clothes, but this interests me. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, a lot of people are thinking in terms of athleisure. People are dressing up um, less in the office. Uh, you know, you go to New York City now and people are wearing ties less and less, but there's always a place for a customer of a bespoke suit. Yeah. Um, and for us, we sell a lot of sport coat and trouser combinations. Um, but the younger demographic, people that are graduating college and these athletes, which is a whole other conversation with NIL deals that we're doing with these college kids and football players all over the country, uh, are billboards for us. And these are the guys that are leading the way in custom tailored suits. Now, the fit doesn't necessarily look like it used to either. And one of our lines is we fit everybody from politicians to pro athletes. Two very different fits, as you can imagine. Pro athletes like them skin tight. Politicians like them a little bit more loose and comfortable and a bigger break in the pant. But we make it how you want it to fit. The Internet's changed the game. People know how they like their clothes to fit now. We ask questions and we make it accordingly. Mark, I have to imagine, you know, you decide you want to go into farming. Maybe your friends, maybe farmers that you know said, Mark, you want to do organic farming. Similar sort of thing with Nathan. No one farms like that anymore. Why would you want to do that? I mean, what was your response to them at the time? Did you have data that suggested, no, this is this is going to work? Well, Al Connie supported me, but uh, <laughs> lots of friends was like, are you, you nuts? You got the support of the person that matters. Yeah. <laughs> nuts. Yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, so it, part of it started with Connie bar, borrowing some teacups from the neighbor. Yeah. So she brings the teacups back and say, have a friend going through a divorce, they're, they're selling an, a, a pecan orchard. Mm -hmm. So we've, we started with that farm. We bought the pecan orchard. Now we have thousands of pounds of pecans. What are we going to do with all those pecans? Yeah. So we started the pecan products, which, yeah. have, which has been 
has been a challenge, but it's largely been fun. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, to say I got encouragement from friends, uh, it was kind of the, even my parents kind of laughed it off as a, uh, uh, this will pass soon. Yeah. So, I mean, what what is your, I mean, outside of sort of the customer, the consumer-based products, right, like the stuff that you put on the sales, I mean, you're also, right, uh, raising cattle, I'm presuming for, you know, meat processing, that kind of thing. I mean, is your, who else are your customers here? Is it mostly to grocery stores you sell in wholesale i mean how does that work we have a wholesale distributor um we're in in i think 200 sprout stores in okay. in, in the country and then we have uh kihi is a local uh, distributor mm-hmm. i say a local distributor they distribute to the to the uh they're a, a wholesale distributor yeah to supermarkets and then we're in local shops we did farmers markets for for many years we've yeah. kind of quit doing that sure so so the, so the, the pecans products or the primary thing that you're doing as far as marketing correct okay gotcha gotcha i think i i think i missed it but so but you guys do have an operating farm with produce and things like that right 400 chickens and uh, uh many beef cattle yeah produce is on the list uh, yeah. but right now we're not a, we don't have a vegetable operation other than just for our own i got you. our okay. own use uh blueberries uh we had a blueberry orchard at the other farm i've recently sold that and yeah. we're getting that started again at the big farm yeah yeah so Nathan, you know, I'm sort of curious. I mean, did you start with just the concept like this is going to be suits? I mean, obviously you're doing trousers. I saw you do overcoats and things like that. I mean, was it sort of a natural progression of, well, you know, suits are a good thing to go? Or, or did you know you wanted to go in sort of all the sort of formal wear, you know, products that you can develop? Um, man, my, my first company I ever started, I started it out of college my senior year at Millsaps in Jackson. And I had an idea for a t-shirt company and I started it with a couple thousand bucks. We ended up doing 2 million in sales our first year, uh, online only wow. by year two, we were on pace to double again. We went on a show called shark tank. I ended up getting a deal with Mark Cuban. Um, but one of the things that I did that kind of set us apart from just any other t-shirt company was I took all the money that I had made and I opened a manufacturing company. Hmm. So at 21 years old, I was a manufacturer and I hired, there was this old poverty-stricken town in South Mississippi where manufacturing was thriving at one time. NAFTA came into play, everything went offshore, and uh, there were a lot of empty factory buildings still. So I negotiated a deal with the county that if they gave me the building at a ridiculous deal, uh, I would rehire the old cut-and-sew workers from L.L. Bean that still lived in the town. Wow. And we did the deal. So we ended up, um, within a year, hired most of those cut-and-sew operators and put them back to work again. But it, you know, for me, it controlled the supply. It allowed us to control the quality. We had just-in-time inventory systems. Everything was made to order based on the consumer that was ordering online at the time. Um, but for me, at 21 years old, you know, I got thrown to the wolves mm-hmm. with managerial experience and learning how to make products and patterns and cutters and sewers and flows. And we opened wholesale distribution. We were in about a thousand retail stores. And um, but. For us, it was a progression, long story short. It started with t-shirts, turned into manufacturing. We grew it vertically. I opened a dress shirt line when I found out our old L.L. Bean sewers used to make flannel dress shirts for L.L. Bean. Okay. So I didn't have to train them. And yeah. I knew that if I at least just got them the equipment, there was, there was a low curve for them having to learn how to cut and sew on dress shirts. Yeah. So it went from t-shirts to dress shirts to wholesaling dress shirts uh, to a thousand retail stores to one of my clients for the dress shirts was a master tailor from New York City. And he would buy dress shirts from us and sell them to his suit clients. And when I sold the company, uh, this guy reached out to me and was like, you should get into the suit game. 
I said, man, I'm not getting into the suit game. That's ridiculous. And he's like, just look at it. So I ended up with this guy following him around the country, traveling Taylor uh, with his leather satchel. And I would watch him measure clients from the neck down. They'd pick their fabrics, buttons, lining styles. And then he'd travel back around the country and deliver them. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is the most beautiful business model I'd ever seen. People pay up front, just-in-time inventory system, which is what I've always built. And uh, that was the progression. T-shirts, dress shirts, suits. I opened my first location in Baton Rouge. Would dress up, hang out at cigar lounges, whiskey lounges, places where that customer would be. They'd compliment it. I'd get to tell them that I made it. And uh, I franchised it a few years later after proof of concept. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking to Nathan Pierce of Pierce Bespoke Franchising and Mark Gidry of Gidry Organic Farms. So, I mean, Mark, you, you buy a pecan orchard and you said, well, what are we going to do with all these pecans, right? And you come up with uh, butter and you know, all these different products. I mean, were these kind of concepts that you had because maybe they were something that you enjoyed? Or was it, what's the best thing a person can do with a pecan and this many of them? Well, pecans are very unstable, unstable right. when they, when, you know, they in, in months, yep. they don't taste the same as they do as when you crack them under the tree. Hmm. So it was an effort to stabilize the product as well. Yep. So there was a young man that worked for the forest named Ben, yep. and he was with a farm up north, and they made pecan oil. So essentially, you're separating the protein out of the out of the pecan. You yep. pull the organic acid, and so we take the organic a- acid and we filter it. So you have nothing in here except the, the organic acid of the pecan. Wow. And then we produce a pecan meal as well, which yeah. you've, you've essentially taken all the fat out of the out of the pecan and put it in the pecan meal. So now you take a product that's very unstable, mm-hmm. and you've created a 24 year, 24 month shelf life of uh, of the pecans. So wow. it's been fun, a lot of learning, uh, a lot yeah. of mistakes. Sure. A lot of I'll never do that again. Uh, <laughs> What's something that you would never do again? Did you try to make pecan shirts or something like that? And just did that with pecan fabrics? Just machinery and yeah. mistakes with machinery. Yeah. And uh, Connie and I laugh. We watched that that show, Clarkston's Farm. Sure. I don't know if you've ever seen I that. I haven't seen it, no. But it's, it's on Amazon or, or Prime, one of those. But this was a businessman. Uh, well, he was a race car driver, okay. uh, Jeremy Clarkston. Okay. And uh, anyway, it was it, he took... He took what he knew in business, and he just tried to apply it to farming. He said, "Well, yeah. that'll off, that'll work perfectly." Yeah. You know? And well, largely doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have a, I didn't have a grandfather or father treat, teach me about farming, yeah. but uh, learn from whatever farmers I can I, I, I stumble across. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been a challenge, but with Connie's support, it's been uh, it's it's a beautiful place, and and we we're uh, we're making a little dent. Yeah, good, good. The, the, the irony in that is I'll never get into manufacturing again. <laughs> I mean, look, I learned everything to get me to the point that I'm at, and I probably know more about clothing than most people have learned in their entire lives because I was thrown into it. But I hate manufacturing. I'll never own a factory again. But it got me to where I'm at, and now I know the ins and outs from manufacturing to flows to wholesale to retail. But I hated it. I was going to question you about that. Did you, you did they, are they still manufacturing in, uh, in Jackson? So it was South Mississippi. So like it's a little manufacturing community called Tylertown. Okay. Uh, and there's still manufacturing going on there. Um, but they do a lot of postal service uniforms, military contracts. Um, and mine was much more, you know, private industry with wholesale, retail, higher end products. But most of those cut and sew, you know, 
jobs kind of shifted back over to the, the government contracts. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I own a small manufacturing business in town, and I had been in the service-related rental equipment for many, many years, and uh, very different disciplines yep. in, in production and, and yep. supply so, I mean, chain involved with, uh, with manufacturing. Is difficult. Yeah, and you know, for us, it, was, you know, it wasn't a sales problem. It was a capacity problem. And, and I don't think most people realize how hard made in USA, especially in the textile industry, is. Uh, and when NAFTA came into play, one of the things that happened, like, yeah, everything went overseas. But people don't realize everything went with it. The equipment, people moved on, mechanics moved on. Well, now it's dry. So if a piece of equipment went down, like an automatic pocket setter, well, it only, only a handful of people know how to fix that. And the parts went with it. So you can't get parts here in the U.S. as a quick fix. you got to get it from overseas, and it takes time. So while you're waiting for the parts to come in, you're trying to organize a mechanic to come in from California. And you only got a few mechanics that can even fit an automatic pocket setter. So, like, those are the things in manufacturing. And then on top of that, you got labor. Like, once you hire everybody in a town like Tylertown, well, then what do you do? Right? Like, you're at full capacity. So now you got to start, you bust people in, like, so those were issues every day, issues. Equipment goes down, no mechanic to fix it, no parts to fix it, no people. And we outsourced all capacity three years in advance, but we couldn't ramp up fast enough to actually keep up with it. So when the fact that the, the, the jobs left, the equipment left, the supply chain, the parts, the yep. mechanics, everything the, left. Everything left. Yep. I hadn't thought about that. That, yep. that must have been a challenge. And then on top of that, you got your typical manufacturing issues. So you run out of thread someone forgot to order it right accidents happen well you've got all these compounding issues but in manufacturing one thing goes wrong and you got 20 people behind it that get pushed back as well so it's fire after fire you're calling them all telling them hey sorry your stuff got pushed back two weeks but you're calling 20 people and telling them hey sorry your stuff got pushed back two weeks we are seeing, you know, more onshoring, I guess, of certain manufacturing sectors. Does that hit the textile industry, or is that still going to? Do you see that mostly staying overseas? So I, I see it coming back, um, but our problem, and and look, I fingers crossed. I hope that the higher end stuff comes back as well. I was in a very difficult manufacturing product, so like a dress shirt, a woven shirt, has twenty one operations in it, and it's not like sewing a t shirt. It's not a knit or a hoodie. Mm -hmm. Our our knitwear manufacturing in the U.S., there's a lot more advantages in focusing on knitwear, a simpler product, than there is a much more technical product like a woven dress shirt or a suit or a sport coat or a trouser. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, I I think that it's going to slowly but surely come back, and I think technology is going to play a big role in that. But the reality is our wages cost a lot more than they do overseas. And with unemployment, where you can make more money collecting unemployment than you can working at minimum wage in the South, in a lot of cases, why would you go sew all day long, right? And and that's the question that these people have answered. You wouldn't. (laughs) Well, I mean, there've been some indication that the unemployment insurance didn't have a big impact on employment, but but Mark, I wanted to talk to you about your manufacturing companies. You see, you also do, like in addition to building pecan, or building, producing pecan products, you're also manufacturing what? Um, it's called a power tong. Okay. So we, myself and my two business partners, Mike and my brother, Doug Guidry, um, we manufacture a, a hydraulic power tong. Yeah. So in 
in oil and gas operations, when you're drilling a well, you drill an earthen hole, well, you line it with a steel liner. And so that steel liner is made up in 45-foot sections. So you use what, it's a big wrench, essentially, a power tong, assembles that tubular, and it goes down in the wellbore. Wow. I mean, so this is, of course, you've noted you've kind of had a history in the oil industry, certainly plenty of disruptions there. I mean, where are you mostly selling these products? Where are they going into into the workforce, so to speak? Our largest market is West Texas, okay. so Permian I guess Basin. about 85%, yep. uh, but we're gradually moving in. We've, we now have a distributor in Dubai, Wow. Uh, Woodhouse International distributes in Dubai, and we're getting a little bit of traction in in, uh, in Europe, so some going into Germany shortly. Has, i got to imagine that your background has influenced how you approach your farming business, right? I mean, like, uh, just hearing you talk about it, you've got kind of an, I don't know if you're an engineer, so I don't want to misspeak, but you've got kind of that sort of systematic description of your products. I mean, surely this has influenced the way you go about farming, right? Somewhat. Yeah. Uh, we're designing a chicken coop that'll move automatically. Sure. So the, the, the chicken manure is wonderful for the pastures, uh, but every predator in St. Landry Parish knows where my farm is as yeah. far as eating my chickens. So yeah. we're, we're designing a coop that'll, that'll house them and then the coop moves along in the pasture and then it gives them fresh pasture constantly well. versus letting them out. But uh, yeah, putting practices in the oil field. Yeah, I'll bring this piece of equipment to the farm the other day. Mm-hmm. This is going to work perfectly. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> one, of, one of the guys, the truck drivers. So Danny Hamilton is yeah. a dear friend of mine and he, he helps me manage the farm walks across and it was an epic failure yeah and uh so the truck driver looks at danny says back to the drawing board <laughs> <laughs> anyway it was a winch that we destroyed the one we pulled the whole thing apart so anyway. I, I think you've stumbled onto something you did a moving chicken coop right this is this is amazing it, but nathan so you've taken your like you said a minute ago right you're not interested in the manufacturing sector anymore right you've you've done your time there but you've gone into sort of like outside of just sales, right? You're selling not just a product, but creating franchise opportunities for other people. I mean, how quickly into starting this business did you think, all right, this is something I'm going to franchise. It's an entirely different sales model, right? So when did that happen? Pretty pretty quick. So um, I've got a couple of longtime friends that have been in franchising for for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, And one of them called me up when he saw that I was starting to fit pro athletes and politicians and my my clientele was getting a little bit more uh, well-known. And he called me and was like, I want you to come fit me up. And, and I flew down, fitted him up, and he happened to be a franchise guy. And he goes, dude, we're going we're gonna to franchise this thing. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sounds good. Flew back into Baton Rouge, went by, right back to my appointments, trying to find sales guys, hiring sales guys, training sales guys, fitting people up. Sure enough, this guy called me and he said, hey, man, uh, I'm going to introduce you to some new business partners. Hold on one second. Merged them in. He said, these are your new business partners. We're franchising this business. And literally within two weeks, we had an FDD and we were franchising. Um, So it came at me fast, but the only reason I went down the road was because I started researching it and I realized that there were no other custom clothing franchises on the market. Mm -hmm. I saw it as a huge competitive advantage. All the other competitors of ours were privately owned or publicly traded. Um, so you'd be talking about like a men's warehouse, that kind of thing, maybe? No, how about even like a Tom James okay. um, or yeah. a Jay Hilburn? Um, so we're not the first traveling tailor service to scale sure. uh, by any means, but we are the first one to franchise it. And ah, okay. the cool thing about franchising is we have entrepreneurs, business owners, salespeople, good managers from all walks of life who are buying an opportunity 
and they will be bringing in their experience with ideas. Uh, and the best example I have of this is, you know, McDonald's corporate didn't come up with the McFlurry. A franchisee did. Mm. And I love the idea that you've got people from different walks of life that are going to have opportunities that I've never even thought of that they will get to bring us and say, have these other franchisees thought about doing this? This is where I'm having the most success. I love it, and it allows you to scale quickly. So we launched in a couple of franchise broker networks, and uh, we're up to about 20 franchisees right now, and we expect to be at 50 by the end of the year. Mark, have you thought much about, you know, it, you know I know you've mentioned some of the other product concepts you have, but you've got, you know, sort of your you're making your nut excuse me on on pecan products i mean like is there another pecan concept that you have coming out of this or is this box here you know kind of where you think it stops we have considered a bar of some kind like a protein bar yeah uh, using the meal and the you know we have the, the, the protein products there um but it hadn't got a whole lot of traction as of yet but uh you know the kind bar yeah oh uh, yeah we would we we toyed with that a bit yeah but uh, we've we've squeezed every ounce of pecan products out of this, other than, you know, a cookie, yeah. which uh, we're involved with a coffee shop as well. Connie and I own a Jet, a part of Jet Coffee, and uh, so a cookie with the with the cup of coffee was part of the concept. So we haven't done that just yet, but we played a little bit with some recipes on pecan cookies. Yeah, I think a common theme is both of you seem very playful in your work, serious about it, but you know, you're squeezing a lot of uh, good ideas out of other good ideas and that's usually what works in a good business so mark and nathan thanks for joining me on out to lunch acadiana thank you appreciate it man appreciate the invite my guests on out to lunch acadiana today have been mark gidry of gidry organic farms and nathan pierce ceo of pierce bespoke franchising we edited this conversation to fit into our time slot here on krbs and you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about gidry organic farms and Pierce Bespoke by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. You can find and subscribe on your podcast app on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from the show on itsacadiana.com and on our Out to Lunch Acadiana social media. These photos were taken by Dylan Babineau. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producers are Molly Richard and Chad Terrio. Researcher is Leah Erdialis. Today's show was engineered by photographer Dylan Babineau. I'm Christian Mater, editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit newsroom. To get the scoop on Lafayette, head over to thecurrentla.com. Sign up for our free newsletter. We'll see you here next time for more business and conversation on Out to Lunch Acadiana. See you later. Out to Lunch Acadiana was recorded live over lunch at Tsunami Sushi on Jefferson Street in downtown Lafayette. Tsunami is open Tuesday through Saturday for lunch and dinner, serving sushi, sashimi, salads, and authentic Japanese grilled dishes. Tsunami welcomes casual dining or reservations. More information at servingsushi.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. If you'd like to be part of Out to Lunch, to learn how your business or organization can become an Out to Lunch program partner, email info at inobroadcasting.com. 